The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about new drivers for the genetic bus. We'll speak with Kevin Esfeldt about what gene drives are and how they can be used, and with bioethicist Lori Zoloff on what it means morally to release them into the wild. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. It's summer and the mosquitoes are out in force in North America. Now they carry new worries about Zika, but they've always carried dangers such as malaria and yellow fever. There's a new technology with the promise to kill off these mosquitoes with no spraying or chemicals required. But what are gene drives? How do they work? Why are people afraid of them? To introduce us to Gene Drives, I'm here with Kevin Esfeldt, an evolutionary engineer at MIT. Kevin, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure, Bethany. Let's start simple. What's a gene drive? So a gene drive is a genetic element, one that's transmitted from parents to offspring, that can increase in abundance. That is, it can become more common in a population, even if it doesn't help organisms to reproduce. Now, you might imagine, how can it do that? Don't genes normally spread by helping the organism that carries them reproduce? How could they do it in any other way? Well, a gene drive system has ways of increasing the chance that it will be inherited by the next generation of organisms. Most genes in a sexually reproducing organism have a 50-50 chance of being inherited by any given offspring. Gene drive systems can increase the chance that they'll be inherited by surviving offspring up to 100% and consequently gain an advantage that lets them spread through the population even if they don't help the organism itself. Now that's tremendously important because whenever we alter an organism, we're diverting its resources to do something that we want. In other words, we're, we almost always reduce its ability to survive and reproduce in its ancestral habitat. And that has prevented us from doing anything to alter wild populations of organisms. Now, many would say that's a good thing, but when you consider the potential of mosquitoes and ticks, to provide two notable examples, to do things like spread disease, that can be something of a problem. So gene drives are sometimes described as being kind of, we talk about selfish genes, gene drives are kind of the extra selfish gene. How, do, how does that work? How does a gene drive increase its chance of, I don't want to say transmission, but I guess transmission across generations? Oh, vertical transmission anyway. So it's important to keep things in perspective. There are some viruses that not only transmit from person to person, but occasionally will get into the genes that are transmitted to the next generation. So in that context, a gene drive is like half of a virus. It's completely lost the ability to spread from person to person and can only be transmitted like a normal gene, just slightly better than a normal gene. And the other thing is these are completely natural elements. That is, the ability to increase in frequency is exactly what natural selection selects for. So there's a tremendous variety of different kinds of gene drives that nature invented hundreds of millions of years ago. What's different now is we have, we now have technology that may allow us to harness gene drive to alter wild populations. And of course, this raises tremendous ethical challenges in terms of not just should we do it, whether, when, and how, but 
also who gets to decide. And you mentioned that we now have the technology to make gene drives ourselves, and you're talking specifically about CRISPR. What is CRISPR and how does it work? So CRISPR is a protein, that is, it's a DNA-encoded molecule that we can easily program to cut and therefore to edit just about any DNA sequence in any organism throughout all the kingdoms of life. This is remarkable because before, in order to edit a gene, we had to make an entirely new protein in order to cut a specific DNA sequence. And this was a tremendous amount of work when we could do it at all. With CRISPR, we simply need to express what's called a guide RNA. Now, RNA is the messenger molecule. DNA is typically transcribed to make RNA, which then gets translated into a protein. RNA does lots of other things around the cell. But the point is that just like DNA has four bases, A, C, G, T, RNA has four corresponding bases. So DNA normally has two strands that pair to each other. RNA normally has one strand, but it can also have two strands. And what's more, you can have a strand of RNA bind a strand of DNA. They, they're perfectly correspond. So to direct CRISPR, to bind a DNA sequence, we just need to produce the corresponding RNA and tag it with a signal that tells CRISPR, here, this is a guide. Use it to find the target sequence. And it will. Out of the three billion base pairs of a human genome, we can program CRISPR to find one unique sequence of just 20 bases of DNA that is only found in one site. CRISPR will go there and bind to exactly that sequence. And if we choose it carefully, to nowhere else in the genome. Now, how do you use that to create a gene drive? So when scientists first developed CRISPR for genome editing, the way we did it is we introduced three separate pieces of DNA into the cell that we wanted to edit. The first one encoded the CRISPR protein itself, so it produced the scissors. The second one encoded the guide RNA, telling it which gene we wanted it to cut. And the third encoded the new sequence that we wanted to replace it with. A gene drive system, a CRISPR gene drive system, is just all three of those on a, a CRISPR gene drive system is all three of those elements on the same piece of DNA. So instead of just putting in the sequence you want to change it to, you also encode the instructions for making that change. If you do this and make an organism from that cell, that is if you edit a cell that will produce sperm or eggs, you can get an organism that encodes your desired change and also the CRISPR components necessary to make that change. And here's where the magic happens. When that organism mates with a wild organism, the offspring will inherit one copy of the new gene and the CRISPR system, and one copy of the original sequence from its other parent. And in those offspring, in the cells that will give rise to sperm or eggs, the CRISPR system will cut the wild-type version on the other chromosome, and the cells will fix the damage by copying over the new sequence and the CRISPR system. That means the offspring now has two copies, which means that when it mates with a wild-type organism, its own offspring are guaranteed to inherit one. And editing happens again, and again, and again. It's like releasing an element into the population that is a find-and-replace function. Whenever 
it finds a copy of the original target sequence encoded by that guide RNA. It will cut it and replace it with the new version. And you mentioned a little bit earlier that gene drives are not just laboratory creations. They actually do occur in nature. Where do we find them? Everywhere, including our own genomes. So there's another kind of gene drive, one that instead of copying itself from one chromosome to the same site on the sister chromosome, because we have two copies of all of our chromosomes, except for the sex chromosomes, which is a bit more complicated. In some gene drive systems, they simply copy themselves at random somewhere else in the genome. So these are called jumping genes. The scientific name is a transposon. And what it does is it makes a copy of itself and just inserts itself at random somewhere else. And the vast majority of the DNA in our own cells is broken transposons. Broken remnants of gene drive systems from the past that have just accumulated over time. What's more, gene drive systems can be essential to evolving potentially important new traits. So the current best theory for how mammals evolve the placenta to feed to feed the embryo and the fetus in the womb is that it required a transposon to move essential regulatory elements to other sites in the genome. That is, mammals and humans would not be what we are today were it not for an ancient gene drive that moved the elements necessary to let us become what we are. But now we have these gene drives and we can make them work in the lab. Scientists are working on ways to use this to reduce mosquito populations, specifically mosquitoes, but also you've been working with nematodes and roundworms, etc. What are some of the ways that a gene drive could be used to reduce a population? So this seems kind of strange, right? How can you reduce a population by spreading an element? Doesn't it need to reproduce in order to spread? Well, the way you do it is you target a gene that requires only one copy for fertility. So it's most effective if you target a female fertility gene, because for obvious reasons, females are absolutely necessary for the species to reproduce. So if you want to reduce the population, you want to reduce female fertility. So if you build a gene drive system, a CRISPR gene drive system, that cuts and replaces a female fertility gene, well, females that have one copy of this gene inherited from a wild parent and one copy from a gene drive parent will be fertile. And that's because you only need one functional copy. But in their ovaries, when they produce eggs, the gene drive system will activate. It will cut the functional copy and replace it with itself. So these females will be fertile and they will transmit the gene drive system to all of their offspring. But if you have a female that has two parents that carry the drive system, then she will inherit two broken copies and will be infertile. So the drive system spreads rapidly when rare because most organisms are mating with wild or wild type organisms. But when it becomes abundant, most females will inherit one copy from each parent and will consequently be infertile, causing the population to crash. Not to go extinct, mind you. Most scientists are extraordinarily skeptical that any combination of gene drive systems could ever drive a species extinct. That's been commonly bandied about in the media, and it is 
as best we can tell, simply false. It cannot be done, even if the rest of humanity just sat on its hands, which is another important point we need to get to. If we have this technology to alter a shared environment, a shared ecosystem that we all depend upon, how can we ensure that no one person just decides to do something? And fortunately for us, if you can, if you can find and replace in a wild population, someone else can release their own find and replace. That is, if you're using find and replace to edit something in a, in a word processing document and you don't like it, you just run another find and replace. And the same is true of gene drive because CRISPR can target any DNA sequence. No matter how a gene drive system is constructed, it's possible to build another one that will overwrite it and whatever change it made can be undone. So, so what that means is that everybody else has a veto over what is done to a wild population. As soon as you see it, you can overwrite it and undo it. So the idea would be you take a gene drive that reduces mosquito populations, the population crashes, presumably as a result of this malaria, say, goes away, and then you can introduce another gene drive that makes the mosquito population fertile again? That's right. Although in that case, you don't even need another gene drive. Because any mosquito that can resist the effect, say you change the DNA sequence encoding that recessive female fertility gene so that it can no longer be cut by the drive system, then any female with that will be immune, will always be fertile, and all of her descendants will always be fertile. And so they'll just rapidly outcompete the ones that carry the drive system, and the population will be restored. And because these are mosquitoes, this would occur incredibly quickly. And how close are we to something like this? It feels like the whole gene drive research field is, is just exploding. It's going so fast. Well, everything is comparatively brand new. Um, the I first thought of CRISPR gene drive a little bit more than four years ago. And now it's been demonstrated in numerous species, including two species of mosquito. But you're not going to see it used anytime soon. And in fact, the kind of gene drive we've been talking about there's probably only a handful of applications in the world that it could potentially be used for. And that's because it's a find and replace without limit. The drive system has everything it needs to be copied to the other chromosome, essentially no matter what, indefinitely. You release a find and replace into the population, eventually it's going to find and replace every copy and spread into potentially every population of that species everywhere in the world. So how do you program those mosquitoes to not spread over a particular international boundary? You don't, or at least not with that technology. And that means that no one will be able to do this unless all of the potentially affected countries agree. So let's talk potential applications then. If you want to get rid of mosquito-borne disease, how common are these? Where do they exist? Is it possible that all of the countries would agree? Well, you mentioned Zika. There's two species that are that carry Zika. Both are called Aedes mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus. And together, they are present in more than 100 countries, harboring more than 4 billion people. So how then are you going to get all of those countries to agree to release a gene drive system? 
to get rid of those mosquitoes. No matter how much we might dislike them, no matter how dangerous they are to human health, they are native to some place in the world. They may or may not be doing anything important for the ecosystem, but whether or not they are, do you really think it's practical that all of those people are going to agree? Especially because you can't test this in the wild. That is, how can you run a safe field trial, given that it takes one organism that escapes whatever containment you use to potentially invade the next population? So even if gene drive works as well as we hope, that means it almost certainly works too well to actually use for almost all potential problems. So the, the challenges you're talking about here are mostly sociological and cultural rather than scientific? And diplomatic. Absolutely. There are international laws that essentially block this, preclude most nations from even considering attempting it. So where might you get enough countries to agree? And the answer is probably malaria. And that's just because we've had a lot of meetings and workshops and so on trying to figure out what would happen if we suppress the level of the major malaria vector mosquitoes down to, say, 1% of their current level. Well, in the African countries where these mosquitoes live, there are many, many, many different species of mosquito. These are, in fact, in the minority. They're just concentrated around human habitations. And since they're in the minority, there doesn't seem to be any other species that particularly depends on them. And the upshot is we don't think there would be really potentially any ecological effects. But we came up with a whole list of them anyway, because we try to be creative that way. And if you assume that every last one of those potential unexpected side effects happened, every last one of them, and you added together how bad that would be, it wouldn't be even a tenth as bad as malaria. Because in the time that we've been talking, malaria has infected probably 20,000 people and killed probably 10 kids under the age of five, just in the time that we've been talking. That's how bad malaria is. So if I lived in Africa, and more to the point, if my two kids lived in Africa, because I have two children under the age of five, I wouldn't care if we couldn't test this in a field trial. I would say, go ahead and do it. Because malaria is just so bad that no combination of unwanted side effects could be anywhere near as terrible as malaria. But of course, I don't live there, so I don't get a vote. But if I did, that's certainly what I would vote. Mosquitoes are one possibility, but you've actually written about other species where this might come in handy. Can you talk about those? Well, another good candidate is the New World Screwworm. And this is an organism that lays its eggs in the open wounds of mammals, and the larvae eat their way out. It's one of the most excruciatingly painful and disgusting parasites that exists in all the world. That is, the very life cycle of this organism involves agony for higher mammals. That is, the organisms that, at least we believe, perhaps with a tad inflated self regard are most capable of suffering this organism specializes in causing that as a default part of its life cycle and partly because of that we have eradicated it from all of north america and we did so by deliberately raising millions of them starting in the 1950s and irradiating them 
so that they're sterile and then releasing them. So a sterile irradiated sperm that mates with a wild one, of course, will not have any offspring. And the ecology of this species is such that you can eradicate the local population if you release enough. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture pays for a facility in Panama that every month releases millions of sterile screwworm flies in a cloud over Panama to keep the species from reinvading North America. And yet last year, it did actually reinvade Florida. And so the USDA released a ton of sterile screwworms in Florida, and now it's gone again. So in this case, the geographical terrain of South America is such that we probably couldn't use sterile, or at least irradiated sterile screwworms to remove them from South America as well. But we could, if we wanted to, use a gene drive system to genetically spread infertility through the wild screwworm population until it reduced to the point of being gone. If we're worried about any particular ecosystem being adversely affected by screwworm, and again, this seems pretty unlikely because we did get rid of them from North America and didn't see any side effects, then we have that facility that can make and release sterile screwworms already. So we could remove them from any ecosystem we were worried about and then watch it to see what happened. So if we're worried about whether there would be any ecological effects of removing screwworms for any particular environment, we could always release irradiated screwworms there, remove them temporarily, and then watch to see what happens. So it's a case where we don't think there would be any ecological effects. We could use a gene drive to remove them. There are only 12 countries that would be affected. Not only are there profound animal welfare reasons to do something in this case, but there are also economic reasons, which is the reason why countries might actually act. Just because screwworms, as you can imagine, are absolutely horrible for livestock, both from an animal welfare perspective and from an economic perspective. They do about $4 billion in damage every single year to the countries of South America. So that's a case where on both animal welfare and economic grounds, I care more about the former. I bet a lot of governments in South America care more about the latter. We arguably ought to do something. Does that outweigh deliberately rendering a species extinct from the wild? That depends on how you view the morality of the natural world and our responsibilities to it. Are we are we wildlife managers? Are we like park rangers trying to just protect what's already there? Or are we gardeners acknowledging that we have already played a profound role in shaping the composition of what we even what we think of as wilderness, and then taking on that responsibility. I think in this case that this is a species where we should preserve it by feeding it on dead meat in captivity. But I don't think that organisms should suffer that excruciating agony of a screwworm infection of literally being eaten alive by maggots for any longer. And this raises an, a particular ethical challenge beyond what I what I just said. And that's and that is we would all agree that if a child is drowning in a lake, it's our obligation to dive in and save them. And that's true whether or not we threw the child in that lake. We have an ethical obligation to save the child. But we only have that obligation if we know how to swim. That is, if you don't know how to swim, you probably can't save the child or at the very least you would endanger your own life by doing so, potentially accomplishing nothing other than your own death. So if you don't know how to swim, you're in the clear. But as soon as you learn how to swim, you are obligated to save drowning children. Gene drive technology in this case is like learning to swim. We didn't create species like the New World Screwworm that cause horrific agony through their very existence. Nature did that. But now we are the ones who are morally responsible. What are we going to do? Now, you also mentioned earlier that populations might be able to develop resistance to gene drives. Is that true? Sure. So for 
population suppression gene drives, like the spreading female infertility we've been talking about, I mentioned that if you want to build resistance, you just need to recode that gene so it can't be cut. Well, if you build a gene drive system and it cuts the target, the cell doesn't have to copy the gene drive system. Some fraction of the time, it'll just jam the broken ends of the DNA together, creating a mutation at that site. That mutation then can prevent the drive system from cutting it again. That is, gene drive systems naturally create resistant alleles that will block their spread. However, if you want to overcome that, you simply need to program CRISPR to cut multiple sequences that are in a gene that is important for fitness. That's because deleting all of those sites so that they can't be cut then deletes that important region. And deleting that important region is more costly than the gene drive. That is to say, you just have to engineer it carefully so that natural selection is on our side. So there's been a lot of papers coming out recently saying, oh, gene drive won't work in the wild because there is this problem of resistant alleles. Well, yes, we've known this for quite a long time. There are resistant alleles. Austin Burt, who first proposed that we harness this kind of gene drive, this cut the other chromosome and copy itself over, first proposed that back in 2003. And he emphasized that this sort of thing was likely to be necessary. But we couldn't do it until CRISPR. CRISPR can readily be programmed to cut as many sites as we want. So we have to build drive systems that will do that if we want them to work in the wild. And no one's been doing that yet. People have only built drive systems that use a single guide RNA. And those ones, of course, we know are going to create resistant alleles that will ultimately block them. So there's been all of these, all of these, so all of these stories saying gene drive won't work in the wild. Well, yes, a gene drive like that will not ultimately work in the wild. It's true. But no one has actually built them according to the design that the models show will work. So if you think of CRISPR as, say, a pair of scissors, right now everyone's been doing CRISPR with just one cut in the paper strip of DNA, say, and you're saying that to avoid the uh, animal just kind of gluing that cut shut, you need to make a whole bunch of cuts. Yes, gluing that cut shut with a, say, adding a little paperclip there so you can't cut that site again. Okay, so make it too hard so that the gene kind of runs out of paperclips. Yeah, in effect, because keep in mind that all of those cuts are going to happen at basically the same time because the repairing them process is much slower than CRISPR is. So if you target five sites, it's going to almost always cut all five sites before any of them get repaired, which means if it wants to jam the ends together, it has to delete all of the DNA in between. As long as that DNA is important, then it just can't do that. Natural selection will select against that more strongly than it selects against the drive system. Now, you've noted that um, there are some species where we really could find gene drives useful, like in screw worms or mosquitoes, but you've also uh, written about gene drives, that places where gene drives won't be useful, like in crops or in humans. Why are there species in which gene drives are not going to be practical? Well, for one thing, any species that doesn't reproduce sexually, or really can reproduce any way other than sexually, so think plants that can reproduce vegetatively, that is, grass just spreads without necessarily having sex. Similarly, some organisms primarily mate with themselves, that is, some plants can self-pollinate. Anything like that, if you try to use a gene drive and it imposes a cost, you're just going to select for them to reproduce without having sex. Because if they don't have sex, then they can't acquire the gene drive system. So all species like that are essentially just off the table. It won't work. The other thing is, got to keep in mind, this is a parent-to-offspring technology. It requires many generations to spread to any meaningful extent in a population. And that means species like whales or elephants or humans, you would have to wait hundreds or thousands of years to have any kind of meaningful effect whatsoever. And of course, in humans, the reality is that everybody's going to be sequenced in a decade or two. You would see it. And you can just imagine future generations laughing at us. You know, really, Dad? You thought that you could tip the scales in favor of 
grandkids that would be like you, huh? You think that's really funny? Like we wouldn't notice that with your antiquated gene drive CRISPR technology. The upshot is gene drive won't work in humans. It takes far too long. And that and that's true even if we didn't sequence everything and presumably have far superior technologies for doing anything in the future. But people do get a little kind of queasy when we talk about manipulating species in this way, potentially playing God and driving them to extinction. What are some of the ethical questions that come up for you that you take into account when working with gene drives? Here's the thing. I think the most important application of gene drive isn't even eradicating malaria, as important as that is. I think it's that gene drive could force us to change the way that we do science. Now, why is that? Well, almost all research right now is done behind closed doors. And that's just because scientists are afraid that if we disclose our brilliant new idea, someone else might go ahead and do it in the lab first, publish first. And if that happens, they get all the credit and we get none. So everyone keeps what they're working on secret from everybody else until they're done with it. And then you can present it all wrapped up with a nice shiny bow. The downside is it's really not much fun to live in paranoia that someone else might be working on what you, you are. Because even if they don't hear about it from you, well... There's lots of brilliant people in the world, and often they think alike. So there's could be 12 other research groups working on exactly the same problem in exactly the same way. And you would never know. Every day you could wake up to see that your last three years' work has just been wasted. It's not much fun. And from the perspective of society, it's incredibly wasteful because 90% of projects fail. Take gene drive. We don't know if it will actually work in the wild. We don't know. It works in some species in the laboratory quite well, but that doesn't mean it will work even in all populations of that particular species. It means it will work in the ones that we've sampled in the laboratory. And since most research projects fail, nobody publishes the ones that fail, meaning somebody else who has the same idea wastes their time trying to get something to work that will not work. To take a step back, if you were to design a system for exploration? Would you have all of the explorers go out there deliberately keeping their plans and where they're going and their record of what they saw last time mostly secret from everybody else? Well, no, that doesn't make sense. It's like saying you're sending out your explorers and they come back and update the cartographers, except perhaps for the juiciest findings, because that's what their next expedition is. That's the current system. But a few years back, we invented, of course, GPS and satellite phones. And it's like the explorers are still doing the same thing, even though they could update the cartographers as they go and keep track of where everybody else is and coordinate their efforts, compete, to be sure, but on an informed basis. But they don't, because the incentive structure is such that they have to come back and report in order to gain any glory. That doesn't make sense. Let's think about this another way. Science is an ecosystem right? Mm -hmm. An ecosystem does not adapt to become better at being an ecosystem or doing any particular thing. Forests do not compete with prairies. The trees compete with the grasses and the other trees. So each tree species evolves to become better at reproducing as that tree species. But the forest itself doesn't evolve to become better. And the same is true of cultural institutions. They don't adapt particularly well to the conditions of the time. And unless there's some conscious human intent going on, and there hasn't been much, because it's hard to actually change a whole system, a way that people do things, they don't tend to change much. And a few years ago, the cost of sharing information went from too high to be useful. That is, if you wanted to share what you were working on that didn't work, you would have to print it out as ink on paper and then send copies to all of the libraries of all the other researchers in the world. And then they would have to go to that library and read it. Whereas recently, the cost of inf information sharing dropped to zero. The system has definitely not updated to account for that. We are wasting so much time, so ma many resources pursuing a frankly obsolete 
model of how we do science. There are some efforts to make science open access. That is, when you come back and update the cartographers, their maps shouldn't be kept behind lock and key only to those people who pay. That's the battle we're fighting now. With all due respect, that's pathetic. We can do better than that. We should be disclosing what our plans are. This should be faster because we win, know what others are working on, and we can collaborate or compete on an informed basis. Find who is the best collaborator who now has something new that we can that can synergize with what we're doing. So you're interested in conducting this gene drive research very openly then? Well, so... So let me continue for a little bit. Mm. The other thing is, suppose that someone comes up with something that is actually dangerous. Right now, we only hear about it when they publish it. If it's truly dangerous, that's probably too late to do anything about it. So right now, our blind discovery strategy is perfectly fine as long as there's nothing dangerous out there to discover. Well, we know that there are nuclear weapons, and we know that there are dangerous pandemic viruses, and there's a lot of worry about super intelligent artificial intelligence. So we also think that there are dangerous things out there, and yet we haven't changed our strategy for discovering things. We're still operating largely blind. If we want to open our eyes, we have to change the system somehow. But how do you do that? You have to change the incentives of science. But for gene drive, the incentives could potentially be different. And that's because if you build a gene drive behind closed doors, you are denying people who could be affected a voice in those decisions. And that's different from all the other technologies. Because before this, we really haven't had any technologies that could allow a single research group to build something that would affect an entire ecosystem. Gene drive is in many ways the first, geoengineering potentially being the other one. And that means we have an opportunity here because what's more, if you're a scientist and you're developing a technology to alter the shared environment, you're never going to get to use it unless people want it to happen. But why should they trust you if you insist on doing your work behind closed doors? There's just no reason. So there are moral and practical reasons to develop gene drive in the open. And so I think we might be able to change the incentives for researchers in the field of gene drive and thereby try out a more open model of science. So we've been calling for everyone to pre-register the experiments they plan to do in the field of gene drive. And we're talking with journals, with funders, policymakers, and even holders of intellectual property to change the incentives for research in the field of gene drive initially. The key incentives in science are the scientific journals for recognition, the funders who respond to that recognition to give you money to do, run your next experiments, the regulators who, of course, decide whether you, it's legal to do those experiments in the first place, and nowadays, holders of intellectual property. So we're working with all of these groups to try to change the incentives such that it is better for researchers to disclose their work in the open, in advance of running those experiments. And that ensures that everyone who might be affected by a technology like gene drive would have a voice as it's being developed. And that's critically important because, frankly, science works by setting up the incentives for other people to challenge our assumptions, to try to prove us wrong. That's really at the heart of science. And yet right now, that incentive system is largely confined to active professional scientists. And that's silly, especially when it comes to technologies like gene drive, because I don't know nearly as much about the local environment as the people who live there. So not only do they have all of the moral power to decide whether or not this even should go forwards, they're the ones whose concerns and criticisms are most important, not just morally, but practically, because they know more than the people in the lab. So the best way to perform gene drive research by far is to propose a potential project. Let's suppress the local population of mosquitoes. As we're doing, let's 
immunize, heritably, the local mouse population that infects most ticks with Lyme disease, so that most ticks are not infected with Lyme disease. We're not doing that with gene drive right now, but it's still an ecological engineering approach. And so we're not in charge. We're working primarily with the communities of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, and those communities, their boards of health, have appointed members of a, two steering committees, and the steering committees run the project. We're just the technical hands of the communities. And that is as it should be, because they have total say in whether or not the technology goes forwards, and also what it looks like. They decided, for example, that we shouldn't just make mice that are immune to Lyme disease. We should also make them resistant to tick bites because that will block transmission of all tick-borne diseases, not just Lyme disease. That was a decision made by the communities, not by the scientists in the lab. And I think that's more of what we need to see for research as a whole, especially for these technologies with shared impacts. I think we will all be better off. Research will be faster. We'll get new technologies to solve our problems more quickly. They're more likely to be supported and wanted. And it's likely to be safer because if you can keep an eye on what people are proposing to do, then you can identify potentially dangerous synergies far enough in advance to do something about it. So I think gene drive is the key to changing how we do science, starting with a field trial in the field of gene drive to see how it works. And then if it works well, that could potentially change the rest of science. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. We are completely out of time, but that was amazing eye-opening. All right. Well, we didn't get to Daisy Drive. Next um, time. <laughs> so I guess that'll be after me next time. If you would like to learn more about Kevin Esvelt and his work, we've linked to his biography and the great Gene Drive explainers on his website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we'll hear from bioethicist Lori Zoloff, who will talk about the bioethical issues surrounding sending gene drives into the wild. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Gene drives are obviously something where scientific issues and our lives intersect. And there are some ethical questions to be dealt with. Are they moral to use? Why or why not? To discuss the issue, I'm here with Lori Zoloff. She's a professor of religious studies, bioethics, and humanities at Northwestern University in Chicago. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for asking me. We've had a little bit of background on what gene drives are and how they work. But in some potential uses of gene drives, this could actually involve a gene driving a species to extinction. What are some of the ethical considerations that scientists and the public need to think about and weigh with this technology? Well, let's start with what malaria is. Malaria is one of the oldest and most significant human diseases on the planet. It threatens half the world's population. Last year, it infected 200 million people, and it claimed 438,000 lives. And most of those lives are little kids in sub-Saharan Africa. The death rate for children under five is astronomical. More than a 1,000 die every single day in their parents' arms. 
Now, that's the background for why this disease needs to be attacked, why it needs to be considered seriously, and why serious efforts are warranted to try to eliminate it. Um, the problem is that malaria parasite is clever, and it has developed resistance to every drug that humanity has thrown on it. So that's why quinine doesn't work anymore. And that's why in some places, um, the drugs that you take, even for traveling, don't work in some areas of, of Southeast Asia. And it's why it's so difficult to eradicate. So the best way to attack it is to think about, about the host vector relationship, how, how malaria is spread, with this, which is mosquitoes. And the only mosquitoes are female mosquitoes. And they bite people only when they're only when they're about to lay eggs. So that's why it's only that's why the drive is is directed to female mosquitoes. And interestingly enough, um, the drive is targeted so to eliminate the birth of females. So only males would be born, and eventually there would be no females. Hence, there would be no there'd be no final generation. But here's the tricky thing: the drive doesn't have to even eliminate the species. It just has to reduce the biting rate below a certain level, a defined level. And then malaria could be um, could be eliminated too, because if there's fewer people below a certain number being bit, then the disease is not epidemic. It's not spread in the same in the same way. Now, there's thirty seven thousand kinds of mosquitoes, right? And this drive is very localized. It would be delivered to a village. There's big spaces in between villages. So the idea would be to see if it worked in one village. So there's the, 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 um, the mosquitoes that they're looking at is one species of the 37,000 mosquitoes, which is um, Anopheles gambia. And that, mos that mosquito, that one specific species, is responsible for most of the worst kind of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's the target of the drive. So no one's talking about eliminating all mosquitoes. In fact, if people wanted to have... <laughs> pet mosquitoes, they could have them. And no one's talking about eliminating even all the mosquitoes in any particular village, just the ones that carry malaria. So the ethical issue is, it's complicated. Is it right to stop a practical solution to a deadly disease because of theoretical concerns about the future? And those concerns might be um, how would this affect the ecosystem in the villages? Now, Project Malaria is thinking about that. And what, one thing they're doing is they're doing um, wide-scale environmental research to find out what happens when one particular species of mosquitoes is eliminated from a particular ecosystem. And so they've thought about that, and they're, they're doing research to answer that question. Does a new species um, fill in that ecological gap? Is um, what happens to the fish population that eat the mosquitoes? So all of those questions are being raised by this project. Now, people do get nervous about gene drives when they think about the power of science and kind of messing with the natural world. Why are people concerned about gene drives? Is this a reasonable fear to have? I don't think it's reasonable. Um, I don't think um, it's thought through. So let's see what the worst case scenario might be. If if the fear is that somehow um, this drive could leap over and eliminate all mosquitoes, is that, what's the coherent fear actually? So um, is it just this abstract fear of um, of manipulating nature? But of course. That, that horse is out of the barn a long time ago. We've been manipulating nature since we became human beings. In fact, you could say uh, the definition of what makes a human a human being 
right? Well, humanity itself is our curiosity, our, 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 our tricking around with, with nature, our, our yearning to change nature, our manipulation and taming and growing and harvesting and seeding and, and breeding um, the natural world into an order that is, in fact, um, good for us, safe for us. And so this is a continuation of long-held, um, long, long-held decisions about the fact that you should eliminate malaria from the world. We've eliminated polio, for instance, and, uh, and that's been altogether a good thing for the children of Sub-Saharan Africa, not to mention the children of Los Angeles and Chicago. So we do manipulate nature. We've made a decision that we don't like how the natural world um, rages and, is, and, and kills, and we intervene whenever we possibly can. So the idea that we ought not do it suddenly when the, the people that are being harmed are children in Africa, and suddenly that's at that point we draw the line, seems to me hypocritical, right? I mean, this, in any mosquito comes into my house bearing malaria, I would kill it. There's no question. So why would I deny that same moral gesture to um, a woman who, who is in sub-Saharan Africa and doesn't have the resources that, that the critics often have? So that's why, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this, because if you start with the science and you understand the limited nature of this intervention, only one species, only a species that causes the most severe cases of malaria, if you, don't, if, you, if you think about the actual science and don't have a science fiction fantasy, um, then I think most ethically ethical and thoughtful moral people would say of course we should end this this terrible terrible disease and this is a this is a efficient and good way to do it a way that's actually um may have less of an impact than spraying and killing every living thing in the village the there's a fear about genetics and i know it and i know people are and have enormous anxiety it's Normal to have anxiety about the power of science when there's been big catastrophic science failures, when there's been a linking of science with um, profit, and people fear the intentions of scientists. But that's not what's going on in target malaria. It's a nonprofit consortium of scientists who are devoted to transparency, who are devoted in co-developing the technology with um, the African people in the villages and with African scientists and university um, scholars from Africa. It's not a grand imperialist gesture in that sense. And we have to be careful about when we criticize science and technology that serves, could, could serve the good of so many people who don't have voice in public discourse. I've said to you when we talked earlier that I think oftentimes we are critical of right-wing public discourse that is mistrustful of the science that supports climate change. And we call people climate deniers when, and we say to them, we say, just look at the science, just look at the science. The science is very clear here. And we um, are critical of people who oppose climate change science. And I think that in fact, the, the progressive left, in which I am a member, <laughs> feels the same way about, um, about gene, gen genetic technology. There's enormous progressive opposition to anything that has to do with genetic alteration. And people need to look at the science very carefully and listen to what the scientists are saying and make the same sort of decisions that we've made around climate change. Respect the science, trust the scientists, um, and that's what to make the world a better place. Now, you mentioned, you know, people do have fears. And, and that's the thing, you know, there's a lot of logic, there's a lot of science. Um, but when it's faced up against this kind of gut fear that we are you know, playing God with, you know, genetics or with the universe, what kind of moral frameworks do bioethicists use to kind of deal with these questions? 
Well, I'm a scholar of religious studies, and so I turn to the actual textual traditions in Judaism and Christianity and Islam that, in fact, support support cultivation and support the notion that the natural world is um, left to its own devices, can be cruel, can be random, can be capricious, and that the human task is to bring justice and is to bring order and is to bring um, and is to bring compassion into a natural world that's that's really quite devoid of any of those of those moral moral um, principles. The natural world is not run by a theory of justice, but human beings can create a theory of justice, and so that's that's the framework that this work has to be considered within. Uh, the, a framework of justice would say. What should our scientific interests, what should our projects be directed to? It should be the most vulnerable among us. And the most vulnerable among us seem to me to be poor children without access to resources, dying of, of a disease that has used to be a problem in, in the United States. But we eliminated every last species, every last mosquito of that species in the United States. That's why it's not a problem here. Right. We drained the swamps. We sprayed every mosquito. We eliminated any mosquito that could be harmful to um, Americans as part of our project of, of developing America for, for human beings. And now we've left the rest of the world alone, struggling with a very, very, um, very, very grim disease. And the solutions that, that, that are being tried have made a somewhat of an impact. The death rate has gone down substantially. It's, it's a good thing. But every one of the interventions is has problems and that's why a combined approach including a genetic approach is going to be needed to eliminate this disease now you signed an open letter um that for a call for further gene drive research in particular to target diseases such as malaria and that call for gene drive research actually specifically talked about research that was vetted yes who should be vetting gene drive research what are the things that they should consider well the people that one of the things that target malaria does is they put together a ethics committee drawn from physicians and scholars and and bioethicists and philosophers and myself in religious studies who um, can do the kind of research around the ethical considerations that um, is needed in this case the for me the main people that should decide whether this is uh, this project is advanced are the Africans who are most directly affected by the disease. I believe that's true in general. I believe in, in the, pre the premise, nothing about us without us. So I think that this has to be, if this has to be um, directed, this has to be vetted, this has to be approved. And it is by the villagers in Mali where the, f the first mosquitoes are going to be, are going to be sent. And it's only with their consent their full informed consent. It's only with respect for their their traditions, their religious affiliations, their their cultural decisions that the project should go forward. And you were mentioning Target Malaria, the Target Malaria Consortium, and they just did a vision and values statement regarding malaria and actually with specific respect to gene drives. Can you tell me a little bit about the group in general and what it is that they've done here? Well, it is remarkable that scientists and social scientists sit around and think about how to um, do ethical research. That's usually not a feature of big science. And it's, it's exciting to me that, that um, two of the leaders of 
the idea of a gene drive won Kevin, who you had earlier on the program, and Austin Burt from Imperial College London, um, are both devoted to transparency, to openness, to public discussions, to, you know, going in and making sure the people who will be most directly affected strongly support and have consented to be a part of this project. So that's, that's really remarkable. That's the, the gene drive pioneers have taken our calls for ethics quite seriously. And it's not always true that scientists stop their research to sit down and think, what are we doing and why and how are we doing it? The manner in which they work, they claim, is just as important as the results we achieve. I've rarely seen such a strong commitment to a respect for process, a respect for justice within a scientific team. And that that's a part of it. Um, Target Malaria is a consortium. No one takes um, full credit. I mean, obviously, Austin Burke, who wrote the first book called Genes in Conflict, that put forward this notion of a gene drive and first developed the technology, could in fact take full credit, but he shares the credit. He says um, he's committed to um, a co-development principle, co-developing all the technology and co-developing and all the research so it's sustainable and can go on um, independent of, of a particular of one particular lab. The idea is is that such a big project takes sharing knowledge, investing in partnerships among many different disciplines and many different institutions. Um, a third principle is the notion that it should be done step by step by step. So first they're learning about how mosquitoes can be bred, how they can be released in the wild, and they're doing all of these things with um, a self-limiting um, with sterile males. So they're, what they're, they're practicing all the techniques on males that cannot reproduce at all. So they can, they're, not, they're not gene drive mosquitoes, they're just sterile males. And so they don't bite anybody. And, and they don't, um, they don't reproduce. They don't make more mosquitoes. So they're using that, they're doing that step first before they use, before they release the drive mosquitoes to make sure that, that in fact all the techniques are safe, that all the release, all the promises for safety can be, um, maintained using first, um, a, a non-drive species. That step slows the research, but it makes the research more safe. And that's, that's considerably important. And finally, they're open and accountable. They have a principle of accountability, of transparency. Um, they place trust at the center of the ability to deliver successful tools for malaria control. And that's only possible if they're completely open about their work. With the people in the village that every step is explained, um, they're doing a, a very massive edu um, education project. You know, in many parts of of Mali, for example, um, to use one of the countries in which they're working, people don't understand that, mal that malaria comes from mosquitoes. It's pretty, it's a pretty wild concept that this mosquito should have to do with a disease, right? I mean, it's, you need infected humans, you need, you, you need, you know, you, you need mosquitoes with a certain variety, you need to keep the transmission chain going. So it, for many people, it's much more logical that it's bad food or bad water or bad air or the season of the year or something. Um, so first, people have to understand that malaria comes from mosquitoes. Malaria is carried around by mosquitoes, um, and that we're the host species. And so that's a, that concept is first explained, and then they explain that it's only females, and then they explain that it's um, that females bite you because they need your blood to to um, to lay their eggs. That's part of their reproductive process. So that openness and that transparency and that and that ability to listen is key to target malaria's program 
and they're very devoted to it. They have a, they have serious anthropologists and sociologists and people who have spent years studying community development. They've been in those villages for five years before any mosquitoes have been released. That's five years, and there's going to be the, it'll be another five years before they they do this. It'll be ten years of an ongoing relationship with people in a specific village. They'll really they'll know what they're doing, and they'll be able to participate. Um, are there any um, ethicists out there? who disagree, who think gene drives should not be used for this purpose? Gene drive technology is very new. And the there has been um, a few people who have looked at it and said, it's too dangerous. We shouldn't do it. Um, most of the attention of the field has been directed toward interventions with humans, um, in particular reproductive genetic technologies like um, um, inheritable genetic changes, you know, modifying embryos. So, so the so-called designer babies, people are very worried about that. And there's been a lot of literature. There's been a lot of debate about that. Should we alter our genetic code? There's been much less um, anxiety around altering the genetic code of a species that's so profoundly dangerous to us. So the, the kind, there's been a few, you know, questions about it, but for most people who've looked at it seriously, and I would really argue for anyone who seriously sits down, looks at the research, sees it's limited to one species, sees that it couldn't spread beyond that Gambia species, um, would think about it the way we think about polio, right? A virus we've eliminated. And we didn't think, oh, no, what's going to happen in the ecological niche or what's going to happen to humanity if we don't have polio epidemics? We went, we went ahead and we eliminated that, that um, causative agent. And we've done it with smallpox, right? So this is another step towards a world in which this particular population is not tragically affected by this particular, this particular mosquito. Thank you so much, Lori. This has been really interesting. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked because ethical considerations are so important. And it's hopefully people know that we've looked at the ethical issues, you know, with great care. And they, every time we've raised an issue, they have responded with a, a change in the protocol or given us a thoughtful argument that's, that's um, addressed the issue or they've gone and said, okay, you're right. We need more research. We need to figure out a different way to do that. Or we need to learn more about the ecology every single time. So it's a very responsive team. It's exactly um, the model for how, how gene drive technology should go forward is hand in hand with partners across disciplines, including a discipline like mine, which is usually quite critical of science. If you'd like to learn more about Lori Zoloth and target malaria, we've linked to her biography and some of the articles at scienceforthepeople.ca, where we've also included links to a bunch of articles about gene drives, their capabilities, and their limitations. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a friendly review. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support the work going into our weekly show with a monthly donation of any size. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. 
Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 